chapter 3 this morning. Sunday morning, we're in a series entitled Timeless Wisdom and uh, looking at different uh, topical studies from the book of Proverbs. If you're with us here today and you don't have a Bible, please uh, flag one of these guys coming up the aisles right now, and that way you can have a Bible. It's marked to the passage, and you can hear the Word and read it with your own eyes. And um, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, today. Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we'll be studying, continue our study in the book of Acts chapter 3 tonight, and it was announced uh, also partaking of the Lord's Supper as a part of that service. It is good to be reminded as Christians that partaking of the Lord's Supper is a command, and so if it's been a while since you've done that, we'll be doing that this evening, and of course you're invited. Two verses here uh, this morning. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, and just as a father the son in whom he delights. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, your truth. Thank you that We never have to try and process it on our own or try to um, give it a life on our own or an application, but that you do that by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would take this passage of Scripture and as we pray so often that you take it off of the printed page and work it into our understanding of you and our understanding of this Christian life so that we can understand what we're in the middle of and understand your ways, and particularly your ways in our life, with the kind of clarity that you want for us. We pray, Lord, for this work of your Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. One of the greatest expressions of the love and the grace of God toward us as Christians is that because of our faith in his Son, uh, in Jesus for the salvation, our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. He not only forgives us of our sins and saves us, but he deigns to make us his children as well, to make us a part of his family and to make us his sons and daughters to become our heavenly father. And I think it's good to just stop and allow that to impact us. I think that so often as we read the scriptures and we read about uh, God the Father, it's so often in this idea of, yes, of course, that's his position. We think of it purely theologically, his position within the Godhead and all, but to just pull back and to really stop and think here today, to, to realize as a Christian, I am a son of God, of God Almighty. I am a daughter of God of God Almighty. And in saving us, God wasn't forced to or obligated to bring us into any kind of relationship with him at all. He could have saved us and not included a relationship with him as a part of that salvation. Uh, He could have brought us into relationship with him, but not into the intimacy of the relationship between a child and a parent or a child and a father. He could have brought us into a relationship that would be uh, as a third cousin, uh, as uh, a a distant relative. Uh, And distant relatives you'd uh, barely keep any contact with. You don't have any kind of super major interest in what's, uh, what's going on. But he didn't do that. He brought us into this incredible thing of a parent and a child uh, relationship. And the reason that he didn't save us into a distant relationship is because he knew that we've been created for a father-son relationship with God. The kind of loving, generous relationship that we see on God's part toward Adam and Eve in that ancient garden Uh, of Eden. And when we think about uh, God as our heavenly Father, one of the wonderful things about the Bible is we're not left to define uh, what He is as a Father in our life based solely or uh, even supremely upon 
whatever kind of experience that we have had with our uh, earthly father. So often people can struggle with seeing God the Father as uh, a father and for that, uh, that relationship and that title to mean uh, anything edifying to them or to be non-complicated by virtue of the fact that so often we will bring the human relationship uh, into it and then that ends up dominating our view of that. And, uh, but in the scriptures, we are told uh, from one end of the Bible to the other, God is described to us as the father that he is. If we, were, if we were left to just assume, okay, he is everything that my f- physical father was, only he's bigger and he's stronger, well, that could, in some of our cases, terrify us related to, uh, to God or give us a very distorted view of God as our father. The true description of God the Father fills both the Old Testament and the New Testaments. Moses spoke in this regard of the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 1. And in the wilderness, he said, where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son uh, in all the way uh, that you went until you came to this place, emphasizing God's tender care uh, for his children. God spoke through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 43. Uh, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor uh, shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored and I have loved you. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring up your descendants from the east and gather them from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, emphasizing his love for his children and how precious his children are in his sight. Uh, Isaiah again, in Isaiah chapter 63, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses for he said surely they are my people children who will not lie and so he became their savior in his love and in his pity he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them Uh, all the days of old. Again in Isaiah chapter 63, doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are, are our father, our redeemer from everlasting is your name. Emphasizing the committed love and patience and faithfulness and graciousness of God toward his people, Old Testament, New Testament, right into this room, despite all of their failures. Jeremiah wrote of it, Jeremiah 31, they shall come with weeping and with supplications I will teach them. I will cause them to work, a walk rather, by the waters, rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Famously, Hosea wrote of it in chapter 11. When Israel was a child, God said, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, and they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And the picture is of a father teaching his child how to walk, the engagement, the tender engagement of a father from the very beginning of them as a nation and the protection that a father offers to a child in that vulnerability. And as to the revelation of the heart of uh, God the Father toward us in the New Testament, you can just, uh, all we need to do is be reminded of Jesus' declaration 
uh, to Thomas when he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus is the greatest definition of the Father, of course, in all of the scriptures. Viewing God on our part as Christians as a loving heavenly Father is encouraged throughout the entire New Testament. And uh, by none other than Jesus himself, Luke chapter 11, when they came to Jesus, the disciples did and said, teach us uh, uh, what to pray. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say thus, our Father which art in heaven. The very beginning, the opening words of that prayer, the, con the confirming of the fact that this is the relationship uh, that he recognizes that he has with us. This is who we are uh, coming to. And since that's a daily prayer, it is a daily reminder of the fact that God is our Father. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus declared, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things uh, the Gentiles seek for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Later in that Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and he who knocks it shall be open. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, he will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, the best of us as parents in comparison to him, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Matthew chapter 10, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you shall speak, for it will not be you who speak, but the spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Matthew chapter 6, but when you do a charitable deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And then it continues, not only Jesus encouraging uh, this understanding of, the uh, of God the Father in this way, but the Holy Spirit as well. Romans chapter 8, "'For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear.'" but you receive the spirit of, adopt, of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Abba being Aramaic for Daddy or Papa, uh, that kind of intimacy of relationship uh, with God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Galatians chapter 4, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of, uh, of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Again in Galatians chapter 3, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The apostle John opens his epistle by declaring he, that is Jesus, uh, came, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, speaking of the Jewish people in general. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And then the introductions to the various letters in the New Testament as Paul wrote to the church in Rome, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. His first letter to the church at Corinth, grace to you and peace from God our Father. His second letter, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And I read these things not in order to uh, provoke anyone to wrath or to frustration or as a vain repetition, but in order to just drive home the point that this is how God sees his relationship with us. 
and how he views his responsibility to us in this relationship, father-child relationship that we have uh, with him. And so that our view of him as God the Father is fashioned by the scriptures. And it's not just a title that is ascribed to him to which we never uh, ascribe any kind of significant meaning or depth within our lives. Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, in, in Galatia, the churches, grace to you and peace from God the Father. To the church in Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father. To the church in Philippi, grace to you and peace from God our Father. To the church in Colossae, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ Jesus who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. To the church in Thessalonica, his first letter, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. His second letter to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle John writes in his first epistle, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And there's so many other passages that could be read in which God takes every opportunity within both the Old Testament and in the New Testament to remind us of the fact that this is how he views, God views his relationship with us as Christians. That it is a, a one, a, 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 it is as a father, and as a father in the best sense of, of the title and, and of the term. The overreaching uh, and overarching message of the fact that God is described as our father in Scripture is that as his people, he has brought into this relationship with him uh, in which he commits himself to taking on all of the responsibilities, all of the responsibilities of a father, again, in the very best sense of the word, into our lives and to be a heavenly father to us, providing us with the necessities of life, with food, with clothing, with shelter, loving us in an individual way and in a personal way, the way that a father loves his children individually and personally and emotionally and sacrificially, available to talk to at any time. Doesn't matter whether uh, a father is the president of the United States or a senator or whatever position they might hold in life and how many layers they put between them and the average person ever coming into contact with their life because of the sheer busyness of their life. A child always gains an audience with their father, and so it is with him. He always willing to talk with us and to give us his full attention and, and so forth. And also including, as is the case with any loving father, as we see it here in our passage in the book of Proverbs, his commitment to his responsibility to chasten us and to correct us when that is necessary. You know, we read, it's interesting to me that Solomon and the Holy Spirit would include this idea of uh, thinking that we need wisdom related to God's chastening. I mean, we could think about the book of Proverbs and think, well, we need his wisdom about uh, our anger or our frustration or temptations in our life or tendency to laziness or, and an encouragement to diligence, all of these kind of things. But it must be important as he speaks about God's chastening in our lives and this context of wisdom uh, and, and so let's notice the wisdom that he provides to us. In verse 11, first, it is a wise Christian who understands that God will chasten and correct us. He will chasten and correct his children. The word correction in that, in that verse, it means to correct, to rebuke, to reprove, to express strong disapproval, to convict, to convince of error 
to show us to be wrong. And I think each of us, if we've walked with the Lord longer than two weeks, we have know what it's like to experience this from God when we have done something or we have said something that we uh, shouldn't. And then there is this strong sense of his disapproval uh, over what it is that we said or what it is that we did by his Holy Spirit within us. And no attempt on our part to try and explain away the situation or to justify ourselves in the situation uh, ever works. He makes it well known to us that he was displeased uh, with that. And that is not okay for us as one of his children. And he's good at that. And it's a necessary part of his role in our lives as as a father. The Bible teaches that God's hand uh, spans the universe. And I can attest that as necessary, it has spanned my backside uh, many, many a time as well. It's also important to, uh, that we understand the meaning of the second word that uh, Solomon uses in this verse, the, the word chastening, so that we don't think of God's uh, discipline or we don't think of his work in our lives in this regard as solely corrective or as purely punitive within our lives. Because while there is, uh, this word can also refer to correction of wrongdoing in our lives. That's the responsibility of any serious parent. It also refers to discipline. It refers to education. It refers to uh, instruction. Not all discipline is corrective on the part of a parent. And it certainly isn't related uh, to God the Father. A lot of it is educational. A lot of it is instructional. When I uh, played basketball in high school and in junior college, very, very little of our practice time was spent on uh, the coaches uh, chastening us or punishing us for what we did wrong. Now, our coaches could do that. They'd get us to run extra suicides if we weren't paying attention or we weren't, didn't have the the, the kind of motivation that they wanted us to have or to run wind sprints or even uh, to bench us for the opening quarter of, of the next game. So it was in their bag of tricks. It was what was a part of, of being a, a, a coach. But almost all the time during the practices, it was spent teaching us, instructing us, and preparing us for the next game. And, and for what would be the uh, next obstacle on our schedule, the next team that we'd, we would play. And a lot of coaching and hard work went into preparing us to be successful uh, in our next game and for the remaining season. Very little was this first kind of uh, of, of correction that is talking about here, chastening. Most of it was correction in the form of instruction and in the form of uh, education. And the coach would identify our weaknesses, weaknesses that we had as a team, weaknesses that we had individually as players, and then they would teach us how to improve our, uh, those areas of our game so that we could be the best team and we could also be the best individual players that we could be. And it's one of the responsibilities of a coach to see that the potential of a team uh, reach its full potential, that an individual player reaches his or her full uh, uh, potential and to recognize uh, the talents that they have, to see the uh, abilities and the talents that are in the different athletes, uh, even when the athletes don't yet represent, don't even recognize those, kind of, those talents and those abilities that they have as yet. And the coach pushes them beyond these self-imposed limitations that others put on us or that we put upon ourselves. And a coach will push us to become the greatest us that we can be in, in the realm of athletics and here in the realm of, of, of basketball. Now, the legendary former coach of the Dallas Cowboys, Tom Landry, 
And as a 49er fan, you will excuse me for using a cowboy illustration in the sermon. I can sense the Holy Spirit has been grieved and, uh, by it, but we know he will recover related to this. But he was a very, very successful coach and a very, very strong uh, Christian. And he declared concerning his job as a coach, the job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to be what they've always wanted to be. And God the Father takes this role in our lives as his children as well. He knows what he has built into our lives. He knows the talents he has built into our lives. He knows the gifts that he's given each one of us. He knows the plans and the purposes that he has for our, uh, our lives and thus the potential of our lives for the kingdom of God. And so he will instruct us and instruct us and teach us and teach us, and then he will push and push and push us way beyond the limitations that we would place upon ourselves uh, spiritually and move us and push us beyond our love for ease, our love for comfort, uh, our laziness or our lack of discipline, any attempt that we might have uh, make to live a lukewarm spiritual uh, life until we become the very best Christians uh, we can be, until we achieve kind of a sanctified greatness in His call and His purposes for our lives. And I tell you, I love this about God, and I love this about His work in our lives. And I don't regret this work of his in our lives. In all of the years that I played basketball, I had, um, I had many coaches, and all of them were very, very good men. But of all of those coaches, I had only one who educated us, told us what we needed to do, and why it was important, and then pushed us and pushed us and drove us hard and harder still, way beyond what any of us thought we were capable of in order to force us to play to the fullness of our potential. And I only had him as a coach for one year, the final year I played, and on that staff he was simply an assistant coach. And I live with the fact that uh, that I never became the basketball player that I might have been if he had been my coach earlier and if he had been my coach longer. I don't lose any sleep over it presently, but it is a regret. It is a regret. And I say all of that to say that our coach or our father in this Christian life, so to speak, God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, He will work to cause us to come to the fullness of our potential in the Christian life. And as they used to say related to athletics, whether it's the field or whether you're on the court, that you give everything you got, you leave all of it on the field or on the court. And the Holy Spirit and God the Father by His Spirit accomplishes that kind of work in our lives so that we will uh, then enter into heaven and we won't look back and regret what we uh, might have been and never uh, became because no one cared enough uh, to instruct us and educate us and then push us into uh, that spiritual greatness and fulfilling God's call for our lives. You notice as well that Solomon doesn't use the word if in talking to his son about God's chastening. Uh, in verse 11, he flatly declares that his son is not to despise or to detest it when it happens because God's work of correction and of chastening in our lives as his children is never a question of if. It is always a, a matter of when. The writer of the book of Hebrews, in, in his elaboration on this passage by the Holy Spirit, he makes it clear in quoting the passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Nobody escapes it. 
every son, every daughter, he does this work within our lives. And that's a comfort uh, to me. It helps me to realize that I'm not alone in this work of God the Father in my life. That no matter who you see, who else in this room, or any other Christian that you run into in town or on the other side of the world, whether they are famous or whether they live a more anonymous life in terms of their place in the body of Christ, but all of us uh, receive this work of God the Father within our lives of correcting us, of instructing us, and of, of uh, pushing us, so to speak, into uh, into uh, to, to maturity as a Christian. He does in everyone the same thing that he's doing in us. And that it isn't a bad thing, this work that he does, but it's an evidence that we are his children. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. But if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Uh, but if you are without chastening or discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. In fact, far from allowing God's discipline to uh, discourage us, uh, we should be concerned if we never experience his chastening in our lives. Uh, the Lord keeps me on a choke chain, it seems like. Uh, doesn't let me get away with much. And... Uh, and he, he, boy, he loves me. <laughs> and that's the way it is related to all of our lives. It's, it's because uh, uh, of that. And so uh, it, it, the uh, comfort that this is to thus, uh, those of us who, for whom this seems to never end in our lives. God's chastening is an evidence that we are his children. I remember uh, being at a pastor's conference 35 years ago or so uh, up in the Tahoe, the High Sierra Tahoe region. I think it was at Zephyr Cove. And it was a Calvary Chapel pastor's conference. And there was a pastor from, uh, uh, Chuck Woolley was his name, from Calvary Chapel Palm Springs. And he came up and, uh, and, and to, to speak and to deliver the, uh, the message, a message there with other pastors. And he addressed this very truth, but from a different angle. And I'll never forget what he titled that message. He entitled the message, When Feeling Bad Feels Good. When Feeling Bad uh, Feels Good. And I think that one of the most intimate, powerful experiences a Christian will ever have with God is when we have failed, we've sinned, we've missed the mark, and God quietly takes us aside someplace, and he exercises his uh, parental role of chastening and correcting us in our lives. And he does it with an absolute perfection. He is unflinching, he is as clear as a bell in terms of making clear what it is that he doesn't want to have be a part of our lives or what we need uh, to do the next time. But it's always mixed with grace, and he always infuses a, uh, a future and a hope in our lives on the other side of his chastening, no matter how severe it might be. And so we come away from those times with God where he just sits us down and sometimes he can just read us the riot act on something. And he's been trying to get our attention like the children of Israel over and over and over and over again and we're not paying attention to him. And then he sits us down, puts our face in his hands, oops, and, uh, and we walk away from that chastened and corrected and humbled and wonderfully, wonderfully cleansed. The psalmist, David, he had failed greatly in sin in his life, and he knew what it was to sin, and to sin greatly, and then try to ignore it, to try and stuff it, to try and hide it, even as he was under the conviction of God for a full year. And then God comes in through Nathan the prophet and just lets him know what God knows and how David's sin 
had displeased uh, the Lord. And David walked away from that experience. And he wrote Psalm 51, is one of the Psalms that he wrote related to that season. And he caught it perfectly when he declared, Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. He hadn't been whiter than snow for a year. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. He had a sense that I've been brought all the way down to the bottom here, not for God to give up on me, but now for a fresh start, having been educated and trained by him. He said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and a broken spirit is a wonderful thing. A broken and contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. He wrote elsewhere in the imagery of God the Father as a shepherd. He said, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod was an instrument of discipline for sheep, and yet he came to recognize this work of God in his life to be a deep, deep comfort a needed comfort within his life. Notice, too, in verse 11, Solomon instructs us that it's a wise Christian who accepts God's chastening and correction and does not despise or detest it. And so these are the two natural tendencies that we have when God chastens us and disciplines us is to, on the one hand, uh, despise it, and then on the other hand, uh, to detest it. And both of those are misunderstandings of and a misinterpretation of his chastening. Notice first, we have to be careful not to despise his chastening. And that word despise, it means to uh, refuse it or to reject it, to hold it a very low uh, view of it. And so uh, the marks of this kind of person that's being uh, exhorted by Solomon here as he's talking to his son is the kind of person who is hard-hearted uh, toward uh, God as a father, hard-hearted toward his instruction, rebellious uh, against God's instruction concerning uh, their sin, and, uh, and God's faithfulness to take that stern role within, uh, within our lives. And so they refuse to take his, his chastening seriously. And when you see that kind of, uh, of a person or that kind of a Christian, uh, as we might say, good luck with that. Uh, just the folly of thinking that uh, I, uh, it, it, with a father who loves us as much as he does, to ever think that I can pick a fight with him and win that fight. Uh, when he is motivated to do this in my life, not in order to crush me or to destroy me, but out of an inexhaustible love that he has for me. And when a person responds to God's chastening in our lives with this despising, all God does is he puts the little spoon down and he grabs the bigger spoon with which to give us a, a whooping. And he loves us enough to prevail in, in the situation. And so it's a foolish way to respond to God's uh, correction. The second thing that we need to be careful of is not to de detest his correction. And here you have the kind of child who is uh, entirely on the other end of the spectrum from this uh, rebellious, hard-hearted uh, kiddo and uh, the person who gets discouraged, as the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it, gets discouraged by God's uh, uh, correction uh, in, their, in their life, his chastening. The word detest means to fear or to feel a sickening dread uh, of. And this is the person who has a tendency to overreact negatively uh, to God's chastening uh, in our lives. And so they feel like uh, sometimes there's a little bit of perfectionism that's involved in, in that person's life or they're a little too thin-skinned 
And so uh, when God takes and sits them down or us down and chastens us, they feel like it's the end of the world for them. God's through with them as a result. And the relationship that I have with God is never going to recover from this, uh, this work of correction in, in, my, in my life. And, uh, and that's the one uh, tendency that some have. If, you, if you're a parent of, of uh, two or more children, it isn't always true, uh, but it, it can be true. You know how often, uh, how different children can be, so different you wonder that they came from the same gene pool. And uh, how the one, when in a, a parental role, we endeavor to correct them and direct them, uh, we are met with rebellion. Uh, right from, almost from the womb, this is their personality, and they will fight correction, they'll fight instruction, they'll fight being uh, broken in, in any way, and, and they, they come up against it with that kind of defiance and uh, rebellion. And then you've got another one uh, where another child, you look at them cross-eyed, and they just collapse in emotionally. Mom, mom, dad hates me! It's over. I'm going to pack my bags and leave. I mean, I had one chance and I blew it. And that's all the love they've got for me. But you just look at them cross-eyed and they collapse in a heap. And all they're craving is a hug and a reassurance that it's not the end of the world. And it's in verse 12 that Solomon kind of comes to the rescue of this second uh, type of child uh, concerning why God's chastening in our lives should never result in a kind of a sense of condemnation or a hopelessness. And so it's a wise Christian who understands the true reasons for God's chastening and correction in our lives. First, it's always a reminder that God views himself as our heavenly father. And to, and to, and to understand that about him, this is him acting as my heavenly father, and then it's an expression of the fact that he sees me, really sees me as a child of his, as a son or as a daughter. And so uh, this is a reminder of the fact that we are his children. Uh, as parents, we don't discipline the children of strangers. If you do, you only do it once. But we just don't do it. We discipline our own children. Second, it's always a mark of God's love for us as his child. And in raising uh, our children, Karen and I, the most self-denying expression of my love for, for our two children came when they needed to be disciplined. And particularly at times where there'd be this long uh, day, absolutely exhausted, so much happened, and you just want to come home, plop down on the couch, and just recover for, you know, five minutes. I'm not even asking for an hour or whatever, you know, just five minutes, and you're just physically dead tired, or those seasons that can sometimes happen in their teen years, uh, blocks of time where it just seems like it's just this endless stream of correction, instruction, and chastening that goes on uh, is required in their lives, and, and you can just end up emotionally whooped because of, of the frequency of it. And the easiest thing uh, to do, of course, uh, for me as a dad, would have been to just not get up from the couch and just say, oh, forget it. I'm too tired to fight you any longer, and if you think you're so smart, you go ahead and do it your way, but you're going to find out the world's not waiting for you out there, buckaroo. <laughs> but it's this wonderful love that we have for them that makes us get up and then go chasing them. And where you just look at them and you say, no, I love you too much to let you win here, and there is no way presently that you can view this in any way as an expression of my love uh, uh, toward you uh, at all, uh, but maybe one day you will. And it's love that makes you stop what you're doing and get up and discipline. As a parent, I would have rather done anything else than, than to uh, engage in that uh, discipline. And I think it must be an awful lot uh, like this for the Lord. 
and that he looks at us and he knows where we are in terms of our spiritual maturity or even immaturity. And, and he says, there's no way you can understand this as an expression of my love right now, the love that I have for you. But one day you will view it that way. One day you will see it that way in your life when you see what it produces in your life and how it prepares you for the life that is coming. And so the day comes, of course, as he works in our life where we do see it and we can see things with 2020 hindsight and that, yes, he was producing something invaluable in our lives uh, all along. As the writer of the book of Hebrews put it in Hebrews 12 once again, for they indeed, speaking of our earthly fathers, for a few days they chastened us, as seemed best to uh, them. Their motives weren't always pure in their discipline us, of us. But He, that is God the Father, He for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And then the third thing, encouragement that he gives this person that is, it tends to be undone in misinterpreting the, um, the chastening of the Lord is that it's always done as an evidence that he delights in us. That is, again, he, he wouldn't bother with us if he didn't love us. And then further, he wouldn't bother with us if he didn't delight in us. If he did not delight in who we are and what he is making of our lives, the work of art he's making of it. In the, in the New Testament, in, in the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about the fact that we are, as Christians, his workmanship, God's workmanship. The word in the original is poema, poem. It's a work of art. I would never say that about myself or about any other Christian. God said it, so I believe it. But I believe it in terms of what I know my life would have been apart from God and what he's made it into now. It is a work of art by comparison. And he delights in doing that work. And he delights in us as he does it. You know, sometimes when we might be someplace and talking with another person, and somebody else's name gets brought up, and we might say to them, oh, he is such a delight, or she is such a, a, a delight. We never mean that they're perfect, but it is that it is a pleasure to know them. And that's God's heart toward us, even when he has to chasten us, and even when he has to correct us. He delights in us. And love is the inexhaustible motivation for correction and for chastening and for discipline. And it's the highest motivation as well. And so there we have it, the wisdom with which to view and to interpret God's chastening and his correction within our lives. Not if he does it, but when he does it in our lives. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, it's important for you to realize that you have been created for a relationship with this God. And a father-son or a father-daughter relationship with him. Not as a third or fourth cousin. This is the relationship that he wants to have with you. That's the kind of depth and intimacy and that's a, and that, because that is the relationship that you have been created for, created for relationship with God. And until I am engaged in what I've been created for, nothing else in life will satisfy and nothing else in life will make true sense. And so the Lord loves you, wants to become a, a, a heavenly father to you today, but it requires... Repentance, turning from my own self-will and sin in life, turning to Jesus Christ this morning, putting my faith in him for the forgiveness of my sins, and then having the Holy Spirit come into my life is the greatest miracle a person can experience, be born again by the Holy Spirit, 
and begin this relationship with God that will go on forever and ever and ever. And what a marvelous work He will make of your life. I mean, you have tried your way. You have been your own father. You have allowed uh, others to be your father. You have allowed the world to be your father, the wisdom that comes from so many other sources. And you see what your life is. And also, we're honest enough about ourselves to know what we are and we aren't that nobody else knows about us. And to realize, no, we need a parent. We need a heavenly father to guide us through life and to raise us. And the marvel is, and that's why this is an invitation. I'm not going to get all excited and hammer people and spit out into the third row. It is a privilege. It is a wonderful thing that God is offering to you. The offer of taking us on not only as a project and completely changing our lives, but taking us on as a child. And if you've never done that before, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin your relationship with God this morning. If you need prayer for anything this morning, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, from just the bottom of our hearts and the, the prayer that we can never quite get into words but that you read loud and clear, we are so thankful to be your workmanship. We are so thankful for the human being, the son and daughter that you are making us into. We think about, and it doesn't take much concentration or effort about where we were headed, what we were becoming, when you didn't have that place in our lives, and then when you saved us and began this work of a father in our lives, and the wonderful, wonderful life as your children that's been produced, rich in your material provision for our lives, but rich in peace, rich in joy, rich in confidence, rich in knowing you, rich in how to treat other people, rich in just how to live life here, Lord. And we thank you this morning for what a good and wonderful Father you have been to us and so much more that you've yet to do as you endeavor for us to leave all that we can on the court or on the field here this side of heaven in order that we might then enter into glory and hear that well done. Thank you, Lord, again, for the privilege of being your work of art, your workmanship. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lucy, would you close us?